This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. John Levy is a behavioral scientist best known for his work in influence, human connection, and decision-making. More than a decade ago, John founded the Influencers Dinner, a secret dining experience for industry leaders ranging from Nobel laureates, Olympians, celebrities, and executives to artists, musicians, and even the occasional princess. With thousands of members, Influencers is the largest community of its type worldwide. In Levy's latest book, You're Invited, readers are guided through the art and science of creating deep and meaningful connections with anyone, regardless of their stature or celebrity, and demonstrates how we develop influence, gain trust, and build community so that we can impact our communities and achieve what's important to us. Welcome, John. It's a pleasure to have you with us this morning. Are you kidding? This is so fun. In our pre-chat, I was like, oh my God, I hope she'll be my friend. Oh, of course, of course. And you know, we've already connected over our love and appreciation for intermittent fasting and OMAD. So mm-hmm. that, that starts the conversation off really well. But Let's kind of dive in. You know, one of the things as I was reading your book and kind of doing research for our discussion, let's talk about the net impact of this pandemic and the social isolationism and the lack of physical connection. Because I would imagine even as wonderful as it is for us to connect over our recording this morning, it's not the same as being in front of one another if we were physically in the same space. Yeah, it's super interesting. And, you know, a lot of companies are now pushing for people to go remotely and save on office space. And they're like, oh, it's not a big deal. And I kind of point out that, okay, then why do people go to concerts? Mm -hmm. Why would you go to a sporting event? And there seems to be something intrinsic about being around other people. And when you look at the research, there's this brilliant Brigham Young study that looked at what's the greatest predictor of human longevity. And as much as we'd love for it to be like our diets and like cleanses and all that, (laughs) the truth is a little bit more amusing. So besides genetics, which we currently can't really dive into or change, that might change, you know, as CRISPR becomes more available. But then if you rank the things that are the greatest predictors on the low level, it's like clean air and water, it's exercise, getting your annual flu shot. They're actually about on par with each other, which is kind of wild, uh, then quitting drinking, quitting smoking. And the top two are number two is having close social ties. So close friends and family. And number one is social integration, which is kind of measured by the number of people you kind of come in contact with in a day. So essentially, are you basically part of community or do you have a sense of belonging? And the concern for me being a behavioral scientist is that in 1985, the average American had just about three friends besides family. By 2004, we were down to two. And now during the pandemic, I can't even, I'm scared to think like where we're at. And that's super concerning. And so one of the things that people can do as we are being kind of re-indoctrinated into society, I mean, I have teenagers at home and they only just in March started going physically back to school after being home, (laughs) being home for an entire year and doing quasi, you know, digital learning. And it was interesting. My children were saying that of their friends, about 25% of the students are physically back in the classroom, that 75% of families are advocating that their children be at home. And yet these children are, are staying very healthy. I mean, obviously they're socially distanced at school. They're wearing masks. 
Mm-hmm. But the uptick in my children's mental well-being and their happiness has gone up exponentially. We actually had a discussion about this last night and they were saying, even though we're back in a classroom and we have all these restrictions on us, and even though we're not all together, I'm so much happier. Yeah. And I have boys. So for my boys to come to me and, and say that. Actually say that. Volumes. Yes. yes, exactly. So it really speaks volumes because they they tend to be very you know private as teenage boys are. I wanted to kind of mention that because it's been interesting as a nurse practitioner, as a human being, kind of going through this massive quote unquote social experiment of the last you know year, almost year and a half, mm-hmm. thinking about the mental health impact has been really profound. And I would agree with you that the numbers that were quoted you know, 15 plus years ago, I'm sure they're even smaller now in terms of who people feel genuinely are their close friends because of this disconnection that we've had over the last 15 months. Wow. So there's so much, I think, to unpack here, right? The first is that there's this concept called anti-fragility. I'm not sure if you've covered this in a previous episode. And if you have, I encourage people to go check that episode out because it's a pretty critical characteristic of living systems, human beings. And the critical element is that whereas I have this glass with water here, if I drop it, it'll shatter. It's fragile. There are things that are robust, right? Hopefully your home, if you bump into the wall, nothing's going to happen to it. But then there are things that are actually anti-fragile and we never talk about this. It's things that when we apply pressure on them, they get stronger. So Cynthia, my hunch is when you did your first podcast, you probably weren't as eloquent as you are today, right? I would agree. Yeah. (laughs) So- I mean, I cringe when I look at old talks of mine, Mm -hmm. but that's because the pressure and the experience actually makes us stronger, kind of like lifting weights, especially in our formative, let's say teenage years, when we are super awkward and I'm talking about myself, I don't know about the rest of you out there. It was critical to have social pressure applied on me. When I say that, I'm not talking about like, oh, go smoke. I'm saying learning to talk to somebody, messing up a little, learning to try again and learning to build the muscle of being social. And if we don't, then what happens is that we just end up with really weak social skills or weak immune systems would also be an example or weak muscles. And that's really my concern around social skills because if loneliness is on par with smoking a pack a day of cigarettes in terms of its health impact, people who are really social. So Cynthia, you mentioned you're an introvert. Is that right? I actually, um, people are oftentimes surprised to know that, but it's the truth. So I will own it. But there's a difference between being introverted and being lonely. And that's, it looks like you have a whole collection of phenomenal, strong social ties. You feel like you have good relationships that support you in your life. Now, people like that tend to be able to create more and more relationships, right? You meet friends through friends and so on. The other end of the spectrum is people who feel lonely and isolated, right? If the average American has less than two friends now, that means there's somewhere zero. And if we spend enough time alone, we start feeling like we deserve being alone. Our muscles atrophy so much that we forget, oh, I could join a soccer league. I could and make friends with a team. I could do volunteer work at my local religious institution. I could support causes and really get word out there and canvas and be involved in a community that cares about a social issue. It doesn't occur to us because we feel like we're deserving of staying at home. And so- I think that what's really incredible is that there was a book written a few years back called The Rabbit Effect. Did you ever read this? I have heard of it. I have not read it. It's based on a a single study where researchers didn't understand why when feeding 
two different groups of rabbits. One of them was fed a very high cholesterol, unhealthy diet, and one was fed a healthy diet. Uh, they didn't understand why some of the unhealthy fed rabbits had no major effects. And it's because one researcher had been petting them and taking care of them in terms of showing them love and affection. Mm. And it, according to this theory, we can mitigate a lot of health impact of diet and biological responses through care and affection and human contact. And I think the big kind of takeaway is that human beings were never meant to be alone. The biggest punishment we can give somebody is either exile or solitary confinement. And so to do that with a developing child is kind of, you know, it's kind of concerning. So if we can do it safely, even with all these restrictions, uh, we should really find a way to arrange that. There's also one additional thing I'd love to add on the topic as a parent. I think you'd probably find this interesting. We haven't found yet, at least I don't think we have, a direct causal relationship between social media and anxiety and depression. But what we have found is that when people spend several hours on social media a day, it prevents them from actually having in-person pro-social behaviors that create bonding and intimacy. So if I am participating on Instagram, I am not part of the track team. I am not part of the Girl Scouts. I am not part of the football team or the chess club developing relationships. And that's where the real risk is. It's that at least so far, what we can tell, and I'm not, you know, I don't think that social media is the devil. And I also don't think that it's a heaven sent. I think it has complexities, but I think the key is what trade-offs are we willing to make? And if I could make a recommendation, it's let's get our kids safely and maybe if appropriate outdoor activities where they can participate in pro-social behavior, because that'll be really good for them. I have to agree on so many levels. And it's interesting, you know, when I was doing my background work in preparation for this and really diving into that fragility piece and thinking about my parents and everyone that's listening, our parents do our very best. And one of the things my parents did particularly well was that they forced me to get uncomfortable and to grow. I was actually telling my children this the other night that when I was in fifth grade, I was painfully shy. And my fifth grade teacher went to my parents and said, I'm genuinely concerned because she's so introverted that we need to do something proactive to get more comfortable speaking in front of people. Mm. And so this kind of started, you know, the years of doing student government. And so I was trying to explain to my children who think that I was never that young. I was never as young as they were trying to explain <laughs> that the reason why I ended up in student government and doing all these other things in middle and high school was because of this teacher who encouraged my parents to really push me. And my mom would say things to me like, I can make it easier for you, but then you wouldn't learn. And mm -hmm. so I sometimes have to apply that to my children and say to them, like, and I have an introvert and an extrovert and the introvert, you know, didn't want to have to present a Spanish. He was, he's taking a Spanish theory class. Didn't want to have to present in Spanish, wanted us to give him the easy out and do his presentation from his bedroom virtually, as opposed to doing it in school. And I made him go to school and it started a big argument and yeah. he did fine. But it kind of harkens back. So when I was reading and listening to you talk about fragility, anti-fragility, it made me realize that there are so many of us, like we're all a little bit fearful right now of what's to come, but we have to push ourselves. And so are there things that make us less fragile or is it just this kind of yearning for connection that will help kind of work through that? Hmm. That's super interesting. So I think that 
ultimately putting pressure on things to a limit is what makes us stronger. There's a few interesting ideas, and this I don't go into specifically in my book, You're Invited. We're used to talking about post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And that's when the growth experience or whatever the experience is too much for us to feel like we grow from. What we don't talk about enough is post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. It's fundamentally, I think that there's definitely biological and social elements to these things, but it's also a matter of mental context, Mm -hmm. right? So I've had experiences that were fundamentally traumatic, right? Over the course of our lives, most of us will experience something. The way we choose to handle that, if we are going to develop new skills, learn new practices to deal with anxiety and stress and so on, uh, can either be a growth opportunity or pure trauma. And I think that that's a lot going to be defined by the cultural conversation and the mythology that you or we raise our kids with, right? So is the lessons that our children are going to be princes and princesses and live happily ever after? Or are we going to have conversations about there's going to be challenges and the people who succeed are the ones that work hard, right? It's not that our kids are smart. It's that they work hard because if you tell a child they're smart, then I think the research has shown if they don't do something well, they think they're stupid. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you focus on the work effort, it's always something that they can control or manage. I think that there's a lot that can be kind of looked at there. I'll be honest, it's not my area of of expertise. I'm more on the human connection, trust, and belonging side of the research. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients.
Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experience a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. So how do we, you know, as we kind of emerge as parents, so I'm going to take that angle because we're, that's what we're kind of touching on, but as parents and children are kind of emerging from this time period in our lives where we haven't been able to be as connected, Mm -hmm. how will people kind of, you know, you talk a lot about novelty. So if people are meeting, like if they're dating or if they're getting together, doing something that's kind of different or unique as a way to spark that connection, Mm -hmm. what are some of the ways that people, if they're listening and they have those concerns or those fears, because I'm hearing people say this more and more as things are opening up as masks are coming off in certain parts of the country, et cetera, Mm -hmm. how can people really foster the sense of connection if they've been so isolated for the last 15 months, how can they go about doing that in a way that makes them feel, I mean, there's no way to put it to to facilitate that. So first of all, I want to tell you all that if you're concerned about things being awkward initially, oh yeah, they'll absolutely be a little bit awkward, just not nearly as awkward or lasting as long as you fear. So there's no doubt that all of us are going to be stuck in that Moderna Pfizer loop. Like, oh, which one did you get? The Moderna, the Pfizer, oh, or whatever it is. Oh, you didn't get a vaccine. Okay, whatever it is, right? Right. So that's like, I get it. We've run out of things to talk. Like we don't have our social skills anymore. You'll gain them back pretty quick. It's like if you were an athlete in high school and you took a few years off and then you got back into things, your body remembers. So you'll be okay. And it's also an opportunity to actually lean into something really interesting about how human beings actually develop trust. So there's this perception that if I want to win you over, Cynthia, I would like send you a gift or something. Like that. It's near impossible to win people over with gifts. There's like very specific scenarios where let's say I know you really care about something. So how old are your boys? 15 and 13. Okay. So if I, you said, oh, we have a family birthday coming up. We don't know what to do. And if I sent you, have you ever heard of African miracle fruit? I have not. It's a this kind of crazy fruit from Africa that has a protein in it that when it binds to your tongue, it changes your perception of flavor. Oh. So it's not a drug. It's a chemical reaction. It's kind of like how drinking orange juice after toothpaste tastes weird. Mm-hmm. This makes things that are sour taste sweet. So if I sent you a bunch of these and a bunch of foods to try out, so it's all weird, Right suddenly I've given you something, an experience that truly stands out because I knew it was something that you cared about and needed. Unless you're doing something like that, it's really hard to win people over with gifts. It turns out that the opposite though works. And this is going to sound weird, but if I ask you to do a bunch of stuff for me, you'll probably like me more. And this is called the Ikea effect. So we disproportionately care about our Ikea furniture because we had to assemble it. And for all of you moms out there, you know that if you were told that your kid was switched at birth, 
when they were 18, you would still love the kid that you raised, no matter how much of a pain in the butt they've been (laughs) because of all of the nights you had to stay up late to take care of them and the homework and worrying about getting them to school and all of that, because what bonds us as humans is, is investment of effort. And it leads or it works because of something called the vulnerability loop. So Cynthia, if the two of us are walking down the street and you, you say, John, I have this book coming out. I'm super stressed. I'm kind of lost. I don't know what to do. And anybody who's ever written a book in their life knows that statement (laughs) very, very, very well. In that moment, you have signaled vulnerability. Now, I have a few options. If I ignore you or I make fun of you, oh, Cynthia, that's just because you're weak. Trust will be reduced, right? Yeah. But if I acknowledge it and match it, I say, Cynthia, I went literally through the same thing. I was beyond stressed. I was so worried about the feedback from my editors. What are you concerned about? Suddenly I've demonstrated the same amount of vulnerability. And now we know that we can trust each other because this loop occurred. And then there's an opportunity for another loop and another loop. And so when we now go to events, the tendency is to want to pretend that we're great. That's just not human. The problem is it'll just actually end up making us look bad. And if we can lean into the fact that we're uncomfortable, I would say something like, Cynthia, I'm so happy to see you. I haven't seen another human being in a year and a half. I'm going to be super awkward right now because I don't know how to act. Will you be awkward with me? And I've just opened a vulnerability loop. Mm -hmm. I'd be shocked if the people you were talking to won't say something like, oh my God, I'm so happy you said that. I feel the same (laughs) way. And I think that that's the, the first thing is that we need to be willing to look a little vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing because that's how trust is built. And that's how relationships are strengthened. I mean, I can go into some other stuff if you want, but I think that that's really the first step is let's find ways for people to invest effort into each other. Go take a hike together so that the hike can take the pressure off the conversation. You don't have to have drinks and have alcohol or have coffee or whatever it is. You could go knit, you could go do volunteer work, you could join a book club, spend most of your time quiet. It's okay. For you introverts, you don't have to be in an event with a hundred people. Go in slow. I think that's so valuable because I know just in my social media experiences over the last, you know, year plus, that's the one thing that slides into DMs other than people asking for advice about fasting or nutrition. What has started to happen is people just saying, I feel awkward. I don't know how to behave. And I think so many of us have this impression that this unique kind of shared life experience that we all have just gone through, all of us have grown in some ways and probably perhaps suffered privately in others. Mm -hmm. And I think that your point about the piece on humility and just being vulnerable and just being transparent is so critical. I know for me as an introvert, sharing on social media private things or personal things is about as uncomfortable as it comes, as I'm sure it is for most people. But I find that's when people will suddenly like the DMs just go bananas where my team will say there's a huge response to something, you know, you're a middle-aged woman and you're going through, you know, if you're, if you've experienced this, you know, let us know. And, And I've been humbled and surprised. And the one thing is it's very easy for us to pretend to be perfect but no one connects with perfection. Like as much as we might try that we want to seemingly like everything about our lives looks perfect, Mm -hmm. you know, imperfect is messy and that's much more desirable. And that's much more aligned with 
truly feeling like you understand another human being as opposed to the ivory tower princess or king yeah. or whomever. But you see so much of that on social media. And even within our own personal lives, you see a lot of that where people just, they don't, they only want to show the pretty stuff. They don't want to show the really vulnerable, like I'm frightened, I'm scared, I'm terrified, I'm upset, I'm mad. Any of those, you know, kind of vulnerable feelings that we can experience as human beings. It's interesting. First of all, I love that you point to this because there's actually a name for it in the sciences and it's called the pratfall effect. And if any of you have ever seen a rom-com, you will notice that the female or male lead always seems to be falling all over themselves. Mm-hmm. And the pratfall effect, the famous study on the topic was done by having people go in for job interviews. And some of them did a perfect interview. And then some of them accidentally spilled a bit of coffee on themselves or dropped some papers. And those people were rated higher than the ones that did it perfect. And it turns out, especially when there's a power dynamic, like if you're intimidated by me, Mm -hmm. if I screw up a little, you actually like me more. And this is what's really wonderful because it means that what makes us human is actually the part that makes us most likable. And it really reinforces a, a wonderful element around this, right? The interesting thing is that vulnerability can be expressed in a lot of different ways. So we're used to thinking of vulnerability like my kids are driving me crazy and I don't know how to handle it, but that might not be appropriate at work. Vulnerability at work might look more like, Cynthia, you are so brilliant when it comes to media. Can I get five minutes of your time to run our media plan by you? I'd really love your input. Because in that moment, you signal vulnerability. You're saying, hey, I think that your opinion really matters here and I'd really value it. And what's interesting about that is that because you view yourself as intelligent, when I ask for that support, you actually view me as really smart for coming to you. So people overwhelmingly end up being flattered and will like you more by giving you advice or input. The key is then to actually apply some of it because my least favorite thing is the number of people that come to me for advice and then do none of it. And Cynthia, I cannot imagine how often that happens to you. Well, the thing that's funny is there was a meme on, maybe it was Instagram and it was called the ask hole, meaning, you know, the person who can like constantly ask you for advice or input and they give it to you or they give it to the person and then they take none of it. So I can completely, and when actually, when I saw that meme, I was like, that is fantastic. And we all have those people in our lives. And you just think I'm like wasting my breath talking to this person because they're not going to take any of my good advice. They're going to do their own thing anyway. Yeah. What they actually want is just your attention and some vindication or something like that. And here's the problem. Uh, It's twofold. One is that Getting people to invest effort into us does get them to like us more. But if we aren't willing to invest effort back, we're just selfish. And then we're no longer going to be a part of a community. Then we either end up with people who are dependent on us or who are parasitic. And that's not a pleasant experience. In fact, research by Adam Grant looked at givers, those that are generous, takers, those that are selfish, and matchers, those that mimic behavior. And he found that the least successful are the givers and the most successful are the givers. And what separates the two groups of givers are those that know where to draw the line, Mm -hmm. right? If I give so much that I'm giving my own customers away and I can't get my own work done, I'm going to fail. But if I can support you and then also make sure I get what I need to done, then the matchers will support me. And so will the givers. 
the takers will kind of be pushed out eventually. I think that really speaks to boundaries. And that's something that I think for so many of us, we really struggle with, especially if we're people pleasers or if we're individuals that, you know, tend to be giving by nature, you know, people that go into service industries, like, you know, working in healthcare is a good example of this. Obviously there are many, but you're very much, you're very heart directed, heart focused, you give, 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 give. And, you know, the kind of running joke when I was in nursing school about a million years ago was that women of a certain age that were nurses were really overweight. And I think so much of it really spoke to the fact that they give to everyone. And then, you know, they're so stressed by the time they get home to do, you know, the next shift of things that they eat to kind of absorb some of the stress that they're experiencing, the feelings they're not expressing or, you know, being a people pleaser. And so one thing that I actively over the last probably 10 years, especially last five, and certainly during the pandemic have worked on our boundaries because boundaries, I think are really critically important. If you're a giving by nature type person, um, and maybe you can speak a little bit to this, but I would imagine boundaries are really critical for the givers. If you're someone that's very generous by nature, giving, you know, on many levels, whether it's advice or money or donations or any type of giving, you know, tendencies that boundaries are really important. Yeah. It's interesting. I, for the longest time, and I still struggle with this because I want to take care of everyone, but there's this funny moment where you're in a conversation and you're done talking. And then I have this like uncontrollable desire to offer people something, even if I don't really like them that much. And it still happens. It never goes away. I think my muscle becomes stronger at like saying, well, it was an absolute pleasure to chat with you, or it was interesting to speak with you, but I really should be going. But deep inside, there's this voice being like, what could I do to help them? And then realizing, why would I want to help them? They seem like awful people. And yeah, boundaries are difficult. Here's the big issue with behavioral change. Anytime we try to change something instantaneously, it almost never lasts, right? It just, I can't start being a marathon runner tomorrow by going to run 10 miles. It's not a a realistic process. My mental models will reject it. My body will reject it. It needs to be a slow and steady process to integrate new habits into my life. And just as much as I need to set aside time and plan and design the environment around us, the, I also need to switch out the people around me or change the conversation. And what I mean by that is there's a super interesting study I came across while uh, kind of developing the influencers community that you mentioned. And it's by these two guys, Christakis and Fowler. And they were curious about in the early 2000s, everybody was talking about the obesity epidemic. Mm-hmm. There's two types of epidemics. They're the kinds that pass from person to person, like a cold or coronavirus, or I don't even know what people get anymore these days. And then there's percentage of the population kind of epidemics, right? So you could say, uh, let me think, Alzheimer's, right? To the best of my knowledge, If we go and hang out with somebody who has Alzheimer's for a few hours, we're not at higher risk of Alzheimer's. But what they found is that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%. Your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends have a 5% increase. Now, happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits, all these things pass from person to person. Now, part of it is just that birds of a feather flock together, right? Which is you go to, what's your favorite fitness class? 
I would say if I were taking a class, probably solid core. I've never even heard of this. Oh, it's, uh, it's like core work on, it's like Pilates on steroids. Oh, got it. Cool. So if you go to this often, you're friends because birds of a feather flock together, right? It's called a homophily. Then there are certain things that your friends are now more likely to participate in that class because they say, oh, let's hang out. And you say, great, I'm free on Thursday if you want to join me. And suddenly they're developing new habits. If you started hanging out with like a bunch of people who like to see movies every week, you might start eating a tub of popcorn. And I don't know how old that is. So the main point is that if we really want to affect our habits, we have to ramp up slowly. We need to start curating the people around us and we have to change the conversation. So when people say, what do you want to do Tuesday night? It isn't, let's go to that restaurant. It's, oh, let's go for a walk or a hike or a, you know, let's cook a healthy meal together. And then you actually end up doing pro-social activities that bond you while bringing this habit to life in a more meaningful way. I think it's really interesting that the research demonstrates how it's not at all surprising about divorce. Cause I kind of feel like I'm in that space where post the peak of COVID, I'm starting to see a lot of people that are making shifts and changes in their lives. And I think that's a beneficial thing, but I can speak to the fact that the obesity after working with thousands and thousands of patients, more often than not, when a patient would come in with their family member, if they were obese, their spouse was obese, their other yeah. family member was obese, their kids, their whole family. Um, right. Yeah. And so, you know, my nerdy brain starts thinking, you know, nurture nature, is this an epigenetic piece? Is there some other confounding variables? Is it, you know, this nutritional, you know, component, but I think it's also, which really speaks to what you're trying to say is that we are so influenced by our connections that if everyone around us eats a certain way, we're more likely to eat that way, as opposed to being the outlier, which is harder to do because we have this drive to be connected. Yeah. It's the basic unit of human survival is community frankly, right? It's not, there's some researchers that believe that Maslow's higher order of needs should be reevaluated because at the base level, we have like food and water, but think about the number of people who starve themselves just to fit in. We actually prioritize fitting in and belonging more than the other characteristics. And that's incredible, but it's the wiring of the human brain. And when we deny that that's how we're wired, then there's kind of really negative ramifications, right? We begin to get depressed and lonely. Now, there's some study that looked at distance from home as a predictor of depression. And they found that once people start reducing the distance that they travel from home, they have a much higher level of probability of experiencing depression. Now that's a correlation, right? One doesn't cause the other. It's not like that I didn't walk, that I got depressed. It's probably that if I'm traveling less, then I'm having less contact with people and less contact with people are both defining distance and depression. So yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating. In the book, I go really deep and uh, all this stuff, but more importantly, like what to actually do about it. And I break down the process and the science and because I didn't want to write a book that's like, oh, that's interesting. People are sad. <laughs> people <laughs> are lonely which is a lot of what the books out there kind of are saying on the topic. This is like tells the incredible science that we're unaware of and then what to really do about it. How do we actually apply it? I spent much of my adult life, as you know, convincing people to come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes and clean my floors. Oddly, they thanked me for the experience. 
Consuming Element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can consume Element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remote remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at Timeline dot com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. So I think, you know, that's something that in this podcast, I bring on incredible guests and have them share their incredible work, science books. And then something that's really important. And I know that you'll touch on this is, you know, for people that are listening, you know, how can they have more connectiveness in their lives? How can Mm -hmm. they, especially as we're coming out of this unprecedented period in our lives. And I'll just keep kind of alluding to it as that, because I kind of feel like we're coming out of that haze and people are anxious to start traveling and getting together and being able to do more than 
spend a lot of time in their homes or a lot of time isolated from the things that they enjoy doing. So what are the ways that people can do this and not be fearful, not feel like they have to have extra boundaries up and be Mm. able to do it in a way that's kind of graduated and reasonable? So I think the first thing is everything that we've basically been taught or told about human connection is basically the wrong or backwards. So I'll give you a simple example. When you were, when you graduated from college or people said, oh, if you want to succeed, you have to go out there and network. Mm-hmm. How do you think people feel about networking? No one likes networking. No, it's the worst. <laughs> like, why would people give that advice? It's kind of like saying, okay, if you want to be a great runner, what you have to do is break your feet <laughs> <laughs> and then run on them so that you can get used to suffering. Mm-hmm. It's completely backwards. Nobody likes it. In fact, Research has found that people's implicit association to it is feeling dirty. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, inauthentic. Do, yeah, that's precisely it. It feels yeah. like we're taking an action to use another human being. Like I said earlier, it might be that the base unit of human existence is belonging, right? Or community. And that's not something that creates belonging. Now, if you check people's association to, what is it? Friendship. They don't have that. They feel great about friendship. We love, even if you're introverted, even if you're shy, you love friends. Now, if you're introverted, it might be a question of how many people over what length of time, right? All that kind of stuff. Totally respect that. No need to overwhelm yourself and do like hang out with a hundred people just because some other people like to. So now if that's the case, then why aren't we connecting the way that friends connect? Why don't we build relationships the way that's natural, which is either we get introduced through friends and family or We tend to become friends with people who have the same interests, activities, or culture. Those are like the easy ones. You love soccer? Go join a soccer team. You love books? Buy 12 copies of mine and start a book club. It's called You're Invited. (laughs) It's phenomenal, according to my mother. (laughs) So, But the point is that that's what actually causes people to want to connect. Now, if you want to connect with more influential people, In the book, I break down the science where we talked about, mentioned briefly novelty, and there's a few others, curation and so on. And you can connect really with anyone you want, depending on like how much time you're willing to commit to something. Now, when it comes to building trust, as we mentioned, people try to buy relationships, which don't really work. And instead, what we need to do is invest effort into one another. And there's this odd little hack, which is if I stopped you on the street and asked you for directions, you're a really nice person. You're probably not giving them to me though right? Like I start asking complex directions, you're walking, you're going somewhere, you're in a rush, not happening. If I stop you and ask you for the time and then ask you for the directions, you're probably giving me the directions. And the reason is that human beings have this association that once we get them to put in a little bit of effort into us, then they justify it and say, oh, that person must be worthy of more effort. So they're willing to put in a bit more effort and a bit more and so on. At a certain point, there has to be reciprocity Otherwise, you're just a taker. But this means that we want to find ways to open and close vulnerability loops, ideally through shared effort, which is what brings us back to our activities idea, which is if you want to connect with people, find activities that involve shared effort. Don't just you know, invite somebody for a drink. Invite them to go to the botanical gardens, right? Like do something that actually has an activity associated to it. There's actually a, a really weird thing. Are you married? I am. Uh, how did you two meet? Oh, gosh. 
match.com. So it tells you how long. That's awesome. So 2002, Uh we met on match.com. So I, yes, I have a whole funny story about that, but yes, that's how we met. So there's this really interesting way that you can have people potentially be more interested in you. And you're going to hear these words and you're going to think I'm talking about sex and I'm not. It's called the misattribution of arousal. And the way it works is, uh, or the famous study on it is had to do with people crossing bridges. Men went across either a standard bridge or a high ropes bridge. So their hearts were pounding, they were excited. And when they got to the far end, in both cases, they were met by an attractive woman. And she said, hey, if you have any questions about the study or whatever, feel free to be in touch with me. And a disproportionate number of men called her up and asked her out that were on the high ropes bridge. And that's because they confused the emotional and physical state they were in the excitement and their hearts pounding, the adrenaline with the way that they felt about her. Mm-hmm. And so in general, we confuse people for the experience, right? There's a misattribution. And so that means that if you want to have a closer relationship with people, find activities that actually excite them, mm-hmm. that stand out as different, that are memorable so that you become more memorable rather than just, you know, going to a cocktail mixer, trying to strike up a conversation, hoping that you're going to talk to that one person you need to just doesn't make any sense. So my recommendation for all of you is one, go out there and do activities rather than trying to network Two, And there's tons of like meetups and things like that. You could go to the foodie meetup where like people explore foods and go on food crawls and all that. You can go on to Groupon and probably find like crazy things. I mean, there's tons of stuff going around in most major areas. Two, try to find activities that are not networking, but actually going to have shared effort. And then three is around consistency. You see that true sense of belonging comes from people seeing each other on a consistent basis and feeling like they're invested into one another. And so if you go once, it'll be nice. But if you keep meeting up, that's when it fosters a sense of belonging. I think those are such great ideas. And it makes me realize we're kind of a foodie household. And so when we travel, my kids and my husband, I always take cooking classes. And so if you were to ask them, yeah, if you were to ask them what their favorite memory is from their favorite trip, they would say, oh, making paella in Barcelona and, you know, being in this cooking class. And so I agree, even for established relationships, how nice that is to, you know, kind of all work together, you know, enjoying something that you're all passionate about and how that's much more important than if we sat in a stuffy restaurant. Not that there are a lot of those in Barcelona, but still. <laughs> you know what I love about the example you just gave is that it was about an established relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. see a lot of couples go on a date night and it's almost like an interview. Mm-hmm. As opposed to go taking a painting class or something, suddenly you're growing together. It's you're getting to explore additional aspects of your personality. It's not just drinks and carbs. Mm-hmm. It's new experiences and joking around and making fun of each other and supporting each other as you work on projects. But it's don't get me wrong. I know parents are exhausted. Like the last thing they might want to do is plug in another two hours of work on something. So find something that's playful, Mm -hmm. right? And not necessarily work. And that's going to be different for different people. But I think it's just a great example of, and I'd love that you and your family do that. Thank you. Well, I have so enjoyed our conversation. And as I told you before we started recording, I dove down a rabbit hole of John's work, watched your TED talk, listened to a bunch of your interviews, read your book, 
And so I really would love for my listeners to connect with you. Can you let them know the easiest way to connect with you? You have a great website, how to get your book, how to reach out to you on social media. Sure. So uh, I'm John Levy, TLB, but it's J-O-N-L-E-V as in Victor, Y as in yellow, and then T like Thomas, I like Lion, B like boy, John Levy, TLB. That's my website.com and that on Twitter, Clubhouse, Instagram, anywhere and everywhere you can imagine. And you can get my book basically anywhere. I mean, you can get it at Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Amazon. There's an audio version, ebook. If you have enough money, I'd be willing to sit next to you and read it to you. Like all these things are options. It's a lot of money, but it's a possibility if you're really eccentric and a billionaire. So yeah, you can find me in all those places. I'm super easy to get a hold of also. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. I will do my best to answer them. It's kind of how I learn and see the world in new ways. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time again today. It's been a pleasure. This has been a treat. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.